This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Ido Vokin, Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 9th of October. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. All right, so let's get right into it. First of all, Ido, thank you for being with us this week. Jeremy is off. He will be back. So as the guest co-host, I will let you go first. What has been the moment this week that you think will go down in history? My moment of the week is going to be the quasi-revolution in Kyrgyzstan. And without sort of pretending to be an expert about Kyrgyzstan, though I know I do that a lot, or pretend to be an expert about various subjects. I don't I don't know the, about the specifics of this, but it, it really is another example of kind of this summer of discontent that there has been in Russia's immediate neighbourhood, if you think about the protests in the Far East, in Khabarovsk, about Nagorno-Karabakh, which we spoke about last week, mm-hmm. Belarus, and now Kyrgyzstan. It's really kind of been a summer of uprest and upheaval in Russia's immediate neighbourhood in the former Soviet Union. And this is another instance of kind of Russia's influence and ability to, to stand in as a kind of mediator ebbing away. And what's your moment of the week? Yeah, that, that all certainly sounds like something to, to keep an eye on. My moment of the week is completely bizarre. So authorities charged 13 men whom they say were plotting to kidnap and put on trial the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. Just very quickly, a little bit of background. Gretchen Whitmer won kind of national attention and praise over the course of the spring and summer for, you know, for putting in place policies that were meant to keep people safe safe during the pandemic, i.e. stay-at-home orders. Some people really did not like this. There were protests in Michigan where there were reportedly chants in which Whitmer was rhymed with Hitler. If you're listening to this podcast, I don't really feel like I need to get into why that's like a wildly inappropriate comparison. You know, she kind of tussled with Trump and, and he called, he famously called her like the woman from Michigan, it's the governor, and tweeted out like, liberate Michigan. So yesterday after this very scary plot comes comes to light. She gave a speech, gave an address in which she noted Trump's, you know, divisive rhetoric and his his consistent refusal to clearly and concisely denounce white supremacy. This did not go down well with the White House. His a Trump campaign staffer, Jason Miller, the White House press secretary, Kayla McEnany, and even the president himself all came out and in various different versions called Whitmer hateful and said that she, how could she hate the president like this? She should be thankful to him. 
a couple things about this that I just want to, and I know I've been going on, but I, I really think this is important for a couple of reasons. First of all, this kind of violence and extremism within our country is not going away. This is domestic terrorism, and it is a real problem. Secondly, I really try to like imagine what you know how people who are not me see certain stories, right? But I just cannot imagine how you would have to be as a person to hear that a governor of the state had allegedly been the victim of an attempted kidnapping plot and say, well, she has so much hate in her heart. Like that is just so, just say, oh, this moment is above politics and go. That I actually do, you know, sometimes I come on here and I say like, it was the debate or it was like this thing that I actually don't, not to give the game away, but I, I don't know that we'll remember in history, but this one, I do think that both both the plot and the response to the plot that we will uh, we'll <laughs> look back on it. Okay, with that, that long-winded answer behind us onto our guest. We are really excited this week because our guest is the new statesman's very own, Sarah Manavis. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So our first question for you relates to what we were just talking about, kind of. And, and, and you know, I, I want to start before we drill down into kind of the bigger, the big question, which is, it seems to me that conspiracy theories which always have a role in American politics and politics outside the United States, right? But that this year they've played an especially outsized role in the U.S. presidential election. And you as our digital writer, digital culture writer, and also as a person from the great state of Ohio. A proud Ohioan. (laughs) Yes. Does it seem to you like conspiracy theories are playing an outside role? And if so, what is it about this cycle that's brought them out? Yeah, I mean, like, you're absolutely right on multiple counts in that, like, yes, conspiracy theories do always play a role. And particularly in the US, like, they play a role all over the world. But I do think you have it in this very clear cut way in the United States for a really long time. But yes, this election, I do think it's definitely been exacerbated. Inflated is not the right word, even though it is much bigger. But I essentially think it's for a couple of different reasons, which are pretty straightforward. I think it's one that even before this pandemic happened, we've never, ever, ever had a more like online voter base. Like even in 2016, when you were talking about, you know, like Russian interference, like blah, 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 all these sort of theories about what was going on. You just did not have the same level of digital literacy as we do now. And digital literacy, I do not necessarily mean good at understanding the internet. I just mean people being online Mm -hmm. um, and being able to access websites. So it's that. Then you add in the pandemic in which you just take that times a million with everybody being online all the time. It's obviously cliche to say that now, but that is the case. And then finally, and QAnon is, I'm sure what we'll mostly talk about, but QAnon it is the one that's really taken hold above all the others. And I think part of why it's been able to take hold in this election cycle so, I guess, like extremely, is that Donald Trump is like a fundamental part of the conspiracy theory. And Donald Trump is sort of the figurehead for this conspiracy theory of like, who's going to save the world from the terrible things these conspiracy theorists and QAnon believers think is going to happen. Yeah. So I think before we go any further, I think we should explain for any of the sweet summer children listening to this who do not know what Q is, if you could just just talk a little bit about what QAnon is and what makes it so attractive to so many and also so dangerous. Yeah, I mean, so QAnon, I guess to explain what QAnon is, the first thing that we should do is explain 
Pizzagate. So in 2016, <laughs> Pizzagate, which it's just so funny to me. I was saying this to my boyfriend the other day. It's so funny that we just all accept the words Pizzagate as just like a normal thing now. But Pizzagate was essentially the completely unfounded idea that Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, John Podesta, in 2016, who was the owner of a pizza parlor, was running a child trafficking ring out of the basement of this pizza parlor. And that essentially, if you looked at some of John Podesta's emails, which were dropped by WikiLeaks, you could see that there was a code. And every time he used cheese pizza or used the word pizza, you could replace the word pizza with little girl. Again, not based on anything. And that through replacing those words with little girl, it proved that he was running a child trafficking ring out of his pizza parlor basement. And by the way, this is like really well-known territory, but just to clarify, the pizza parlor didn't even like have a basement. So like this is how structurally it cannot exist. Anyways, mm-hmm. that was 2016. This had a pretty big effect in the 2016 election. Then in 2017, you get to QAnon, which essentially built off the back of Pizzagate, which was essentially the idea that someone under the name of Q, an anonymous person posted on 4chan, which is a website where people can post nefarious things. It's essentially just a chat board or a message board. Essentially said, oh, you know all that Pizzagate stuff. Well, I have a confidential document that proves that the Democrats essentially and a couple of high profile celebrities and prominent public figures are all running a child trafficking ring and they're devil worshippers. It's a satanic child trafficking ring. And again, John Podesta's pizza parlor was just one of the many different things that they're doing. And that crucially, Donald Trump is trying to fight them using the power of the United States government. And so that is QAnon. And it is called QAnon because the person who dropped this theory at the end of 2017, November 2017, went by the name of Q online. And again, it's probably, it's worth saying as well that it's likely to be several different people that are sort of Q, so to speak. But that is what QAnon is. And so it's snowballed since 2017 into essentially being that you think, if you believe in QAnon, you believe the Democrats are child traffickers, child eaters most of the time, and that Donald Trump is using the United States government to try to save children. So it's a very like sort of righteous idea. And yeah, and again, as I said before, like Donald Trump is like a fundamental part of it because he's like the savior of these trafficked children being trafficked by Democrats. Can we talk a little bit about how these conspiracy theories spread? So it's become quite fashionable among certain circles to, you know, slightly glibly say um, the internet was a mistake, right? But like, realistically, for like your average internet user, the internet is like, what, like five websites? And so how those websites behave, like places like Facebook and Google and YouTube, how they behave has like a huge, their, their kind of internal politics has a huge impact on like how people experience the internet, right? So you, you said earlier, very incisively, I think, we've never had a voter base that is so online, but like yoga moms are not going to go and seek out sort of 8chan or whatever, like they find this stuff on Facebook. So how do these things spread and how do the policies of the main platforms, which most people experience the internet through, affect the spread of these theories? Yeah, I mean, there's a pretty clear, I guess you'd call it a user journey, but it's more of like a content journey, which with most like nefarious content online, it can be a conspiracy theory, it can be a meme, it can be anything really. It tends to be, it starts on 4chan, it makes its way to Reddit, it makes its way to Twitter, 
and then it makes its way to Facebook. Um, and that tends to be at its most basic kind of how things work. And then, you know, you can get things like then it ends up on Mumsnet. So essentially, that is what happens is that you, you see these things drop on 4chan, they make it to Reddit. And then you essentially have a combination of people in good faith. I mean, in good faith, sharing a conspiracy theory. But you know what I mean? Like, genuinely believing the conspiracy theory and posting it on Facebook out of like genuine concern and genuine belief. But then you also do have, I mean, I hate using the word troll, but it is like the most, it's it's the clearest way to explain it is that you do have people that are intentionally proliferating content on 4chan and Reddit, which are slightly niche or slightly more nefarious sites, I guess for not, yeah, again, not like yoga moms. And then putting it on Facebook in the hopes that this nefarious thing they know not to be true will start sort of like infecting the brains of normal people and can then go mainstream because that's obviously the aim. And again, you can also have a combination of these things where it's like you might genuinely believe in QAnon, but you are deliberately posting on more mainstream websites like Facebook in the hopes that it will spread more quickly. So yeah, that's kind of just how most, again, nefarious is the word I keep using, nefarious content travels across the internet. And again, it doesn't have to always be like that. But in the case of QAnon, it festered on 4chan Reddit for quite a long time. Oh, and I should also mention that like YouTube plays a big part because the YouTube algorithm will just start recommending you more and more extreme stuff. So that is another element of it. But I would say like YouTube and Reddit are probably on the same playing field. And then those things just eventually get filtered down into Facebook for a variety of reasons. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. One thing that has surprised me about Q is how how mainstream it's gotten in, in not such a long period of time. For example, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who won her primary her congressional primary in Georgia is kind of a, I mean, she's a proponent of this conspiracy theory. I think that there are, and you can disagree, but I think that there are members of the media who were also surprised at how mainstream Q got and how quickly, and who thus maybe don't know how to frame, not that I do, right? I think that like, this is something that I struggle with as well, how to frame the conspiracy theory, how to qu- ask questions about the conspiracy theory. Are there approaches that you have seen work better or worse in talking about conspiracy theories, Q and also more generally, are there best practices that you try to deploy? And, and what do you see when, like, and alternatively, are there instances that jump out where you're like, yeah, we became complicit in, in trying to cover this responsibly? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So I've actually spent this entire week speaking to people who have had their family members or friends like essentially go from literally never sharing a conspiracy theory before to like being a full-blown like QAnon obsessed can't talk about anything else kind of thing mm-hmm. and I think one of the things that's like really tricky about QAnon in particular and it kind of is how all conspiracy theories work but QAnon has really like the people who are proliferating that message have done a really successful job of proliferating this which is that when you are confronted with someone, if you believe in QAnon and you are confronted with someone saying, oh, that's simply not true. There's literally no evidence for this. It's ingrained in the way the conspiracy theory works to just simply go, oh, those people are brainwashed. And like, oh, those people like haven't seen the light. Like they just, they don't understand and almost to take pity on them. And I think that's like a very clever and again, like very scary thing that QAnon has been able to achieve, which is that it is very hard to approach because 
even when you say like, there's literally like, I mean, literally zero evidence for this. And actually I'll, in a moment, I'll explain sort of where you can actually see evidence for why it's actually untrue specifically. It's just, it's able to sort of do that thing where it creates a very easy response for those who believe in it to combat questioning, which I think other conspiracy theories have not done as good a a job as QAnon has of making that like an integral part of the key message. It's like the conspiracy theory. And then also here's how you combat people. And do you just have to have this one response and it works for everything? I do think part of the problem with reporting on QAnon, and I think it's actually going to be an increasingly really major problem we're going to have and maybe forever But essentially, I do think QAnon is like a confusing conspiracy theory for most people. And I think there probably has not been enough like nipping in the bud explanation from the very start. I think with conspiracy theories, it's very tricky because you do that thing. I think you kind of hinted at like you don't want to inflate them and like give them attention by saying like, oh, there's this new conspiracy theory because then you obviously inevitably turn people onto it. However, what's what's very useful about places like 4chan and how QAnon has been able to take so much hold is because it was confusing. You had to kind of understand Pizzagate quite intimately if you were going to explain it. It's so weird. Like, it's so, so, so weird as a conspiracy theory. Like, it's not like they faked the moon landing, which is sort of like, it's opposite day. The moon landing didn't happen. Like, if you know what I mean. Like, it's it's Right, there's like nine different levels you have to like go through to understand. Like, satanic pedophiles who also eat children. Like, I mean, it's just... It's so far-fetched in like a different level that it, it sounds like it's like badly written sci-fi by like a kid that was like a little bit weird when you were 13. I mean, it's been going on since 2017. I think this is what people don't understand is they think it's something that started maybe like a year ago. It's been going on and been very popular since 2017. And I think it's a combination of very little reporting. I mean, it is confusing. Like if you're not someone who gets all this stuff and knows the background, you do have to do a lot of explaining to kind of get to where you are. And again, B, I just think there is never with any conspiracy theory enough immediate debunking. And again, it's hard because it's like when nobody knows about it, you're like, how useful is it to start explaining debunking? And there's not really an incentive for like as a mainstream media publication to do that, to be like, you've never heard of this thing and here's why it's not true. And so, yeah, I think it's a combination of all of those things. I think that's why it's been able to to kind of fester. And then suddenly it just felt like overnight, it was like everyone believes in this. Why do people fall for this? So the thing is, I think most people who believe in QAnon, like I do think they're actually very sympathetic characters. Like, I mean, the case with the politician you were speaking about, Emily, is obviously a little bit of a different one. But everyone I've spoken to this week and, you know, I've read probably like 100 now case stories on reddit maybe probably more than that at this point of people talking about family members who have been radicalized into leaving QAnon, and every single time they say yeah my family member was like unemployed or like they'd just gone through a breakup or like they were on welfare or benefits or they were in lockdown by themselves like that's a really common one i've been seeing is like people completely isolated during the pandemic and unemployed and essentially it's a vulnerability thing And so I think it's very easy when there are so many questions in the world right now around pretty much everything in a very, in a very low level of control, especially if you're someone who is like completely isolated and doesn't even have like regular social interactions or a job to feel like, oh, here is an explanation for why everything is happening. And the sort of cherry on top for QAnon 
is that you can say you're doing it as like you're doing the right thing. Like you are trying to save vulnerable children, which again, like other conspiracy theories have not necessarily had that like righteous element to it. And so I think that's why it's very easy for people to believe. And again, like you can see why like parents and normal people who maybe like aren't very educated or just like don't understand the way the internet works and can't spot when something is probably misinformation, why they would go like, oh God, I must care about children. I must care about these terrible things happening and not really going through like any sort of verification process to believe it. And so I think like, obviously there's different levels. Like for some people, QAnon will just be, there are child trafficking rings that prominent celebrities such as like Chrissy Teigen and Barack Obama, again, completely random, that they're involved in. And so we have to save children from from them and like these people that are like a part of this almost like Illuminati group, or you get to the like very, very, very extreme of like satanic child eaters. So there are varying levels, but I think ultimately it comes down to the fact that you feel like you're doing a moral good combined with the fact that most of the people that I've spoken to and have seen online who are getting radicalized are people that are just like very isolated, very vulnerable, and just looking for any sort of answer to why the world is how it is right now. And so I think that combination is pretty potent. So I, I don't really understand how Q works, but as I understand it, like Q is supposedly a person and Q writes posts sort of revealing like his fight against the deep state or something on 4chan. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah, the idea is that Q is this guy who has this document that proves that Donald Trump is trying to save these children. Does Q write stuff directly or do people report what Q is thinking or writing? No, Q writes stuff directly. So that's like how it all started. It happens less now because it's so mainstream. But at the beginning, it was literally an account posting random stuff with the username Q on 4chan. And again, it's probably multiple people logging into the same account. And it's people have been able to sort of trace it to a couple of different people. Do we have any idea why they do it? No, but I also think the same reason why anyone starts a conspiracy theory, probably a combination of enjoying the control, enjoying the sort of trolling, really. I mean, that's how like most of it, that's how most of it begins, at least like in the last 10 years, is that people on 4chan like the idea of like making everyone fall for it. And that gives them like a really big high of watching this thing that they created go viral when they know they've made it up. And we, I mean, we should note that now Q is so mainstream that there are cases in which something is pushed by Q, but is not identified as being pushed by Q. So one example is the the conspiracy that a U-Haul at a protest was paid for by George Soros, which is obviously like an old anti-Semitic chestnut. That was pushed by Q, but it was not in the mainstream. It was not like presented that way. I have a, one last question for you, which is this has gotten so, so big. And as you said, I, I mean, this is not whoever wins the presidency in November. This doesn't go away on November 4th or on Inauguration Day in January. And I, I don't mean to vilify people who, who are believing in this, you know, who, as you say, in many, in many cases are sympathetic people. But the conspiracy theory is not sympathetic, right? It's, it's deeply anti-Semitic. It's been likened to the new protocols of the elders of Zion. It is, I mean, it's, it, it's quite dangerous. You know, we're having this conversation with a few weeks to go to the election. What happens next? You're absolutely right. I think, so there's a theory that vice writer Anna Merlin, I think coined, which is called like conspiracy singularity in that at the moment, if you believe one conspiracy theory, you kind of believe them all. And as you say, like 
anti-Semitism underpins like almost every mainstream conspiracy theory. I mean, now and since the beginning of time. And you do have this thing where if you believe in one, you believe in them all. And it, again, I don't mean to be like, I think it's all just going to keep getting worse and who knows when it'll stop. But I do think that so much of this is tied up in, yes, it's tied up in Donald Trump, but it's tied up in like, again, longstanding anti-Semitism. It's tied up in the pandemic. It's tied up in like a deep state conspiracy theories that have existed for decades. And so honestly, I think no matter who wins, if Donald Trump wins, I think QAnon grows because they think, okay, we're finally going to have like this pedophile ring we think exists unveiled and shown to the world and we're all going to be proved right. And if Joe Biden wins, I think what ends up happening is they become enraged that their savior has fallen and they need Mm -hmm. to like organize and like get more creative and like really go after Joe Biden. I mean, I just think there's like no outcome in which this in which this isn't ramped up further. And again, the pandemic isn't going away anytime soon. And that is such a big fueler behind it. Because again, because all these conspiracy theories are like in this cocktail blender right. thing all together. So I just think they all exacerbate each other. And I genuinely have no idea how they could stop unless there was a an insanely, insanely, insanely strict rule that anything vaguely related to QAnon on any website anywhere in the world was just like immediately being removed. Because yes, there's like organization in person but a lot of that organization in person initially happens online. I mean, all of it does initially happens online. And so I think when you quash the online element of it, the rest of it goes away. But again, I, I, it would be a crazy amount of moderation and policing online that I think would get backlash of its own. That is also not incentivized in any way for social media platforms. All right. On that uh, dystopian (laughs) note, (laughs) Ido, would you like to introduce our next section? And now it's time for a section we like to call. You ask us. Okay. Our question this week comes to us from Kieran, who asks, what happens to Q after the Facebook ban? Sarah, we will we will let you try to answer that. Yeah. So the Facebook ban, in case people don't know, is that Facebook has announced that it's going to be removing any QAnon-related Facebook groups, Facebook pages, and Instagram accounts, which is a huge move. I mean, across the world, even here in the UK where I'm based, there is a like an exponentially growing number of QAnon groups and Facebook pages. So I think it is actually a really good move. I don't think we should be like clapping for Facebook, like well done. But it, I do think it will probably make a decent dent, at least for now. However, it is worth also saying that people individually posting about QAnon in any capacity, like they not said that they're going to remove those posts. So that's the rule is just that these pages are going to be banned and any subsequent ones that appear will also be banned. Again, as I say, I think it it will do a good dent. I think, again, this is where a lot of places organize. I think QAnon is very good at localizing itself. Like there will be, again, even here in the UK, like the QAnon, like Sheffield's whatever group, like that kind of thing. So it's, it's very good at like finding local groups to organize local protests. A conspiracy theory is much more convincing coming from your neighbor than coming from a random person on the internet that kind of thing. So I think it will be successful at quelling that a little bit. But again, it's not that aggressive when you actually look at the reality of how QAnon spreads and that a lot of it is just individual posts. Everyone I spoke to this week 
for this piece I'm working on about QAnon, <laughs> they all were like, yeah, it's just from like individuals posting on Facebook. They didn't get any content from Facebook pages or groups. So I think it will do something. I think it's good. But I ultimately think this is so out of control that it won't do anything significant. Again, I know that's not super cheery. No, I think, I mean, one question I had is it just seems not to like take Kieran's you ask us. It just seems that Q is such an American conspiracy theory and grounded at the American political culture and context. Could you speak a bit about how it made its way abroad? Yeah, it's been really interesting looking at that transition, because you're right, like, more than any conspiracy theory, really, having Donald Trump as a focal point is very American. And it's about the Democrats, and it's about American celebrities, um, which, of course, like, so much of the United States is of global interest. But yeah, I think I think fundamentally, the internet can be very, very American, especially social media platforms. And I sort of think it's inevitability that those kinds of conspiracy theories that again like are founded in doing good in the world and here's a political figure that's going to help you do it I think that can take hold pretty much anywhere and so I think what ended up happening is again that same sort of like content journey that British people are I mean again most of the people I spoke to this week that are based in the UK that have been sort of radicalized are just like watching stuff on YouTube they're watching Joe Rogan even though they're based in the UK, they're watching Joe Rogan and then they're recommended a video about Pizzagate and then they end up at QAnon. And so I think just because the internet is such a like, it's so flattened out and sort of non-geographical in that way, it's very easy to come across that content. It's just proliferated in the same way. And again, I think you water it down a little bit when it comes to the UK. Like what you see is less about like, again, it's not like there's a specific pizza parlor in like the John Podesta owns. It's not like that specific, but it is like, oh, there's a global conspiracy theory. Again, satanic pedophiles. It's good to just reiterate that because it's so ridiculous and it's good to remember that it's so ridiculous. And yeah, and again, in the way that the US seems to affect every part of the world with everything it does, why wouldn't this also have the same effect? And I think that's why it's been able to translate so well to the UK, I guess. And on that note, thanks to everyone who sent in your questions. Keep them coming in to us at uaskus.co.uk and look for our announcement of our guest next week on our Twitter account at Statesman World. As ever, for our final segment, we're going to take a look ahead. Sarah, what global affairs will you be watching closely next week? So I actually really struggled with this. I'm essentially struggled with this because I'm moving house next week. And so my life is literally in boxes all around my home and I can't think about anything else. I've never moved with a dog before and moving with a dog is a nightmare. And in a pandemic, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yes. In a pandemic is actually a very crucial part of this. (laughs) You might be surprised Mm -hmm. to find out. So I've been really struggling to think about global events. It's not next week, is it? The virtual presidential debate. No, we can talk about this right now because this will also, we'll do a joint what's happening next week. So next week, the debate commission said, okay, next week, Donald Trump, because you're still contagious with COVID-19, which is deadly, potentially, we're going to have a virtual debate. And then the Trump campaign was like, no, we're not doing that. That's unfair. And Biden and ABC were like, okay, cool. We'll just do a town hall then with Biden and George Stephanopoulos. And then the Trump campaign has asked for an in-person debate. And Dr. Sean Conley, Trump's doctor, has said, well, he's all clear. And they're like, see, he says he's all clear. It's like, well, Dr. Sean Conley also misled us this past weekend about the state of Trump's health. So I don't know that we're going to take the good doctor's word on this. So what Sarah and I will be watching as she moves and I stay put is, I think, right, the, the debate and how it 
shakes out and whether we have one at all, or like whether the commission gives in to the president who is not saying that he's tested negative and just given us Dr. Sean Conley's word, whether it's the Biden town hall, like what happens in the wonderful world of a presidential debates next week? As Emily said, like I'm from Ohio, as people who know me will know, I grew up in Dayton and I've lived in the UK for eight years. So for now, like three presidential cycles, because I moved in 2012, I have to do this like very horrible thing where like if I want to watch the presidential debate live, I set an alarm for myself at like three in the morning, like through squinted eyes, like open my laptop in bed and like stream it on like a Facebook page. But there's something like so surreal to me at the thought. And I know that he probably won't do it. But part of me like would love to feel like I'm like in my bed Skyping with like Donald Trump and Biden <laughs> via some like really weird, again, like Zoom debate. And I'm kind of sad I'm going to be denied that. And I'm probably just going to get a slightly glossy, yeah, George Stephanopoulos town hall situation, probably like not even next week. Udo, assuming that your big event next week is not also the presidential maybe debate, what will you be watching in global affairs? I feel I should just give you a shout out for doing the hard work of watching the debate so we don't have to. Thanks, (laughs) man. Thanks, Udo. So if you want to find out what actually happens without watching the debate, because you value your sanity, you you can follow Emily's summary on the New Statesman website. I will be looking at Nagorno-Karabakh, no surprise. There apparently are noises of a ceasefire today announced by France, and I believe the leaders of Azerbaijan and Armenia are flying to Moscow for ceasefire talks. I'll be looking whether that holds because, as we've said, this is the most violent fighting since the 1990s. Although there haven't been significant changes on the ground, it's kind of been essentially a stalemate, but hundreds of people have died and it's quite a tragedy on for, for civilians on all sides. So I'll be hoping that the ceasefire holds. Indeed, absolutely. Another another one to watch. All right. With that, all that remains is for us to thank our guest, Sarah Minavis. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me again. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends, acquaintances, enemies about it. Jeremy's not here, so can't stop me from saying that. As a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review and follow our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.